Bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Look out for me, oh muddy water, your mysteries are deep and wide, and I got a need for going someplace. And I got a need to climb upon your back and ride. You can look for me. But first, I find it important to ask, how are you doing? I hope you are doing well. It is very chilly and snowy here in Chicago, where I record the podcast with Patty. Gonna give a quick shout out to Patty. I don't want to forget her. Patty, she just told me today, and I... <laughs> I, I couldn't honest. I couldn't quite figure out how to bring us to this topic, but Patty has a glow because she told me just today she is pregnant, and we are all very excited here in the studio for her. She's pregnant. She's still here in the booth. She's given me the thumbs up. She's going to be here for as long as she can, and I'm very grateful for her. I'm very grateful for you, the listener. I'm glad you're joining us for another episode. I hope that you are doing well. I hope that the show finds you at a good time, and if you are not having a good time uh, in your life, just know that I am here to hopefully make it a little bit better. There are people in your life who can hopefully uh, do the same, do even more than I can. Ultimately, I'm just a voice in your ears. And I hope that you have people in your life who can improve your day or your week or your month. Welcome to another episode. Uh, there, I do have a little bit of a... It's not an announcement. Uh, this is nothing in comparison to Patty's amazing announcement that she dropped on me today. Uh, I do have new additions to my musical theater cast recording collection. Uh, I've been going to the library off and on for months, if not years now, and just in this past month, I have received and uploaded to my computer the following cast albums. Once on this island, that would be the recent revival recording. Mean Girls, the recent revival of Carousel, Escape to Margaritaville, The Band's Visit, Fiddler on the Roof, An American in Paris, oh, The Fiddler on the Roof, the most recent revival, I should say, Kinky Boots, The Wiz Live, Frozen, the original cast of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Merrily We Roll Along, Something Rotten, and Beautiful, The Carol King Musical. Ah, da, 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 that's not the end of the list. You thought it was because I made it seem as such, but no, the end of the list I saved the best for last, everybody. School of Rock. I can't wait until we eventually get to that one. I have no idea how I feel about that show. I've never heard it from beginning to end. So uh, I'm very interested to do that. Uh, oh, I should say the Merrily We Roll Along recording that I got, that is the Encores concert staging. Look, it's important. With these cast recordings, you need to know, okay? If you're a true enthusiast, you need to be able to differentiate original cast, off-Broadway, Broadway, concert, TV. Where, where are these coming from? What do you have? Uh, I'm, I'm glad to add these because I previously, before these contributions, I had 515 digital cast albums in my collection. Uh, this, you know, this includes you know legitimate recordings as well as a couple of bootlegs of some stuff that was never really officially released. I also have some demo recordings of shows that have never been produced, uh, which are varying levels of oh, 
use a neutral term. Interesting. Uh, I'm happy to be doing this podcast because it's an excuse to engage with this collection that is slowly but surely growing ever larger. I think it's important to engage with what you love and not just, you know, let it sit on a shelf collecting dust. I'm very excited to be talking to you today about Big River. Let's get some show facts. Let's learn about this show just in terms of sheer numbers and names. So, of course, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is the 1985 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. The original Broadway production opened on April 25th, 1985 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, where it ran for 1,005 performances. This places it at number 118 on the list of longest-running Broadway musicals between Beatlemania, which rests at number 117 with 1,006 performances, and Newsies, which is at number 119 and 1,004 performances. The Big River Book is by William Hatman? Hotman? Hmm. Once again, I find myself in an awkward position. Bill, if you're listening out there, I apologize if I mispronounced your name. The music and lyrics are by Roger Miller. We're going to get a big deconstruction of him in just a few moments. The director of the original production was Des McEnough. The choreographer was Janet Watson. And the cast included Renee Abujonai. Oh, goodness. I apologize, Renee. Even more to you. A bigger apology to you than the one Bill received. Uh, the cast also included Bob Gunton, John Goodman, yes, that John Goodman of We're Back a Dinosaur Story. I don't, not, I'm not familiar with any of his other credits. Daniel H. Jenkins, Ron Richardson, Susan Browning, Gordon Connell, Patty Cohenor, my apologies, Patty, and Jennifer Lee Warren. The original production not only won the award for Best Musical at that Tony ceremony, no, no, it won six additional Tony Awards. It won awards for Best Book, Best Original Score. Ron Richardson, for his performance as Jim, won a Best Performance by a Feature Actor Award. The show won awards for Best Direction, Best Scenic Design, Best Lighting Design. It was a big runaway hit at that ceremony. These wins are notable because because Big River was the rare example of a purely American show winning big at a time in an era, a pocket, when British transfer shows were all the rage. And I think that is a, that's a very crystal clear explanation as to why it won so big. I think American Tony voters were very eager to embrace something that was truly their own, truly American. The show was revived on Broadway in 2003 at the American Airlines Theater. It's notable, I should say, uh, because it was mounted by the Roundabout Theater Company and Deaf West Theater. Around half of the characters, including Huck, were played by deaf or hard of hearing actors, and the entire book and lyrics were communicated both orally and via sign language. I did want to talk about uh, the man who wrote the, the show's score, Roger Miller. Roger Miller is a singer-songwriter from the 1960s. Uh, he came out of the Nashville sound era, according to Wikipedia. Uh, his number one singles include Dang Me, England Swings, and a tune that I immediately was able to conjure up in my mind, King of the Road. Trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes ah, But two hours of pushing broom buys an eight, twelve, four bedroom I'm a man of means by no means King of the road 
Roger Miller was known for a musical style that was very hard to categorize. He uh, incorporated patter, scat. Uh, having listened to a few of his songs, I kind of think of him as a G-rated Johnny Cash. He also wrote a ton of novelty tunes, which clearly informed his work for Big River. Uh, he wrote songs for Disney's 1973 Robin Hood. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle-lolly, oodle-lolly, golly, what a day Ultimately, Roger Miller produced 19 studio albums, three live albums, and he's featured on 69 compilation albums. 69! That is truly bonkers. And he took home 13 Grammys. Big River is his only theatrical score, which is surprising considering how big it won at the Tonys. Uh, he also, a uh, quick bit of trivia, would go on to play Huck's father, Pap Finn in the original production for three months after John Goodman left the cast. I am trying to err on the side of positivity today. I don't necessarily want this show to become the angry video game nerd for Broadway. Can you fucking imagine if that's the kind of show that I wanted to produce? <laughs> so uh, just keep that in mind. I, I ultimately don't really enjoy Big River. Spoiler alert. I'm spoiling it for you right up top, but I am going to try and err on on the side of positivity and find what works here. So of course, Big River is based on the 19, uh, not, <laughs> it's the 1884 book Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is a direct sequel to The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I read the book in high school. I assume everyone else did. Did you read the book? Don't answer. I'm just a voice in your head. Mark Twain tells us right at the beginning of Big River, Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot will be shot. Oh, Mark Twain. Oh, Mark Twain, the master of critical deflection. Ugh, I, I, when I realized that opened up the show, I became a little exhausted. I could feel myself sort of deflating like a balloon because it is a deflection of criticism. I don't like that we start the show on that note because I am a theater goer. I am a consumer. I'm a customer. Don't, don't from the very beginning hold a hand up to my face and say, look, any interpretation on your part, any attempt to find meaning out of this trifle is just meaningless and pointless. So why don't you... It's it's that same mentality people have when they say, come on, why can't you just go to the movies, have some popcorn, and turn off your brain and have fun? Look, I want to have fun, but I can't turn my brain off. And I'm sorry, Mr. Twain. I know that I'm just one homosexual in 28... Not 2018. I'm living in 2019. I'm a 2019 homosexual, Mark Twain. And I say to you, I am going to try and find meaning out of this. And I think the people who put the goddamn show together were trying to find a moral and an arc for this material, which is very roundabout and very reliant on vignettes. So they tried, and I'm going to try and meet them halfway. I'm going to see if they were successful in pulling something out of your material. That's right, Mark Twain. We're all trying to make your material work. And I'm being very... Well, I'm not really erring on the side of positivity right now, but I say to you, in any case, Mark Twain, I put a hand up to your face. So... 
At the top of this story, Huckleberry Finn has been adopted by the Widow Douglas and her sister, Miss Watson. Uh, Miss Watson does own one slave, and his name is Jim. He is a very important character, but at the top of the show, he is very much relegated to the background, the sidelines. Jim is the only person in Huck's life who doesn't lecture him on how to live his life. This should be noted right up top. Everyone thinks they know what Huckleberry should do with his life. Specifically, they think he needs to get an education, they think he needs to go to church, and they think he needs to become a respectable human being, unlike his fucking loaf bum of a father, Pap Finn. And Huckleberry is fucking over it. He is so sick and tired of all these fucking lectures. You know what Huckleberry wants to do? He wants to be barefoot 24-7. He wants to pick bugs out of his hair. He wants to pick apple cores out of his butt. Huckleberry is a fucking hillbilly hick covered in, I don't know, schmegma and molasses and, I don't know, tar... (laughs) He's, he's, he's a gross kid, and he just wants to be gross. What's wrong with that? <laughs> it doesn't help the fact that all of this moral posturing and condescension is coming at him from one direction, and from the other direction, Tom Sawyer and his buddy pals are saying, hey, why don't you show those motherfuckers in the system that you're not going to play by their rules? You should play by my rules. Hi, I'm Tom Sawyer. I'm a real piece of shit. You should play by my rules instead, the rules of the adventurous criminal boy who lives in a cave and, I don't know, has sex with bats. Uh, Did I mention Huck's father, Pap Finn? Did I mention him before? Well... He attacks Huckleberry. Ooh, he's drunk. He's ranting about the government. Oh, how Huck's father hates the government and how the government takes money out of the pocket. He hates the government and he hates Huckleberry in a drunken rage. This inspires Huck to run away from home. Uh, he, it's weird. This is, this is a weird setup to begin with, I should say. Huckleberry has officially been adopted by the widow Douglas and her sister, Miss Watson, as I said right up top. But Huck's father is on location. He is about, I believe he's just living in the woods and just being a straight-up derelict. Uh, And so after Huckleberry is attacked by his drunken father, he decides I'm going to run away, but I'm also going to fake my own death. Yes, in straight-up Huckleberry fashion, he slits a pig open and he spills its blood everywhere, and because there's no DNA... (laughs) investigations to be had, he thinks that this will work. And frankly, I think it does. I'm not quite sure if we visit Widow Douglas and Miss Watson after that point, but we can assume that everyone is dumb back in this day and age, and they, they probably bought it. Oh no, there's blood about, and Huckleberry is missing. That must mean that he is dead. Uh, Huck runs away to an island where he finds Jim, who has escaped slavery. He has escaped the servitude working with Miss Watson. They agree to partner up and sail down the Mississippi. That's when the plot actually falls apart. It seems like there is a fairly straightforward linear narrative up until that point, but then it gets pretty vignette to be honest. And not to say that there's anything wrong with an episodic storyline, But uh, as we'll come to find, I just don't think the characters themselves can really hold hold up that structure. They can't carry us through that structure because they're not especially interesting. Again, trying to err on the side of positivity. Uh, The vignettes include Jim and Huck coming across a dead body 
in the Mississippi River. Jim refuses to let Huck see the drowned body. They encounter a ship containing uh, men and women who tried to run away from slavery, just like Jim, and are now being returned. Uh, Let's see here. Oh, they meet a pair of con men known as the King and the Duke, who enlist them in a sideshow act. And on top of all of this, Huck kind sort of not really falls for a young girl who recently lost her father. Long story short, Jim is eventually sold back into slavery by those two conmen, the Duke and the King. The family he is sold to winds up being related to Tom Sawyer. What a coincidence. And when Huck shows up at their front door, this family, who has not seen Tom Sawyer in quite some time, believe Huckleberry to be Tom Sawyer. They say, oh, Tom, it's been so long. Come on in. We hardly recognized you. Uh, You're early for your visit, but, you know, sit down for a spell. Take a look at our new slave. His name is Tim or something. Tom does show up for his family visit, and he loves the fact that Huckleberry has, his identity has been mistaken. And Tom agrees to play his own younger brother. Uh, And so they, they do decide that they're going to free Jim. The problem is that Tom turns it into a game. As I said, Tom is a piece of And Tom decides that the the escape of Jim from servitude cannot be simple. It must meet certain parameters. It's a heist. He wants to turn it into a straight-up Ocean's 8 heist. It's so complicated, and it goes so wrong, that Tom is ultimately shot, I believe, by his own uncle in the leg. And Jim could run away. He, you know, he could just leave these two idiots, these two children behind. Uh, I would I would fully support that decision. Instead, Jim takes Tom to a doctor and by doing so relegates himself once again to the role of a slave. He is presumably going to be returned to Tom Sawyer's family. But as Tom is being treated by the doctor, Tom reveals in very dramatic fashion that, <laughs> that Miss Watson... Jim's former mistress is now dead. She's dead. And had previously freed Jim. Previous to her death, she had had said, I free Jim. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for telling us now that after all of this drama, Tom, the original drama queen, we stan a drama queen. Uh, Jim reveals in the final moments of the show that the body... Uh, he and Huck encountered on the Mississippi was that of Huck's father, Pap. That's right. Pap is also dead. He presumably drowned face down in the river trying to get a bone out of his own reflection's mouth. (laughs) Uh, Jim goes north to free his family, which seems like a very perilous journey, to say the very fucking least. And Huckleberry thinks to go west so he can, I don't know, whittle? I don't know, take up the banjar? I don't know. Raise a cougar. I I don't know. Uh, who who could? Uh, oh, I can feel the negativity flowing through my body, and it's delicious. It's delicious. But gonna stamp it down. That is my plot summary for Big River. I hope you liked it. Now, when examining this show, I did look into a few sources. The nice thing about Huckleberry Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, is that there is only one cast album. That would be the 1985 original Broadway cast album. Uh, Unlike uh, Kiss Me Kate, there are no others. There are no other major recordings that I could find. I also watched the Tony's clip from the 1985 Tony's Ceremony, and I'm going to be pulling from my mind, my memory, because I have seen Big River on stage. That's right, I've seen a full 
full production. It was years ago in only Maryland. But I do have a point of reference for how this show works on stage. Considering that we're pulling from all of these sources, let's take a look at the score that Roger Miller put together for Big River. So, of course, we got the overture. We got this plinky-plunky harmonica overture that at a certain point transitions into really what I have to assume are trumpets piped in through a keyboard. <laughs> the overture, the uh, I'll go, the on-tract coming out of the intermission is actually, I feel much superior uh, to the overture that we get at the top of this album. You know what? I'll play just a little bit of it. I want you to hear this weird sort of transition from the, the harmonica, which has a very grounded, realistic country sound, of course. But when we go into the transition to the trumpets, the horns, oh, it's, it's not that great. Let's hear that now. The first proper song is Do You Wanna Go to Heaven? And in a way, this does evoke the song convention I mentioned during our Kiss Me Kate coverage. This is a sort of welcome to the world, welcome to the village type song. It introduces us to the world of Huckleberry Finn, yes, technically, but it doesn't really work in the sense of establishing any sort of community, any sort of... Because they're all focused on Huckleberry, it it just seems very narrow. There's no opening up. There's no real... Mark Twain is all about, I feel, ensembles and creating a really eclectic mix of voices and personalities and perspectives. And Big River ultimately fails to really bring that to the stage. The book and the score really just don't do the job. And you could see it right at the top with Do You Want to Go to Heaven? By having all of these characters lecture Huck. They, they, they come off as very one note, very uh, singularly crabby. And it's not, it's not funny. It's not fun. And I have a very hard time understanding how it could be staged in a way that's compelling. The production I saw in Only Maryland was very static. But I, I feel like they were actually hemmed in by the material. I really, I, if I was in the director's shoes, I don't know what I would do with this opening number. And on top of everything, the top of the song is one of the most withering, unappealing moments. <laughs> it, it, the, the first lyric that we hear sung in this show, it, I'm just going to play it. Look here, Huck, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven? Well, I'll tell you right now. You better learn to read and you better learn your writing. That's that's what you'll sh- never get to heaven because you won't. That's the first no. enough already. <laughs> I, that that's the first thing that you hear as an audience member. This ridiculous character voice. Looky here, Huck. Do you wanna go to heaven? This is a musical, okay? We gotta sell people. We're out of the overture. This is the first song. I just, I would argue that this is not necessarily the first voice 
that we should be hearing. I, I just, <laughs> I really don't like it. It doesn't put me in the mood trying to be positive. The Boys is a song by Tom Sawyer, sung by Tom Sawyer and his crew, his little crew of grubby rapscallions. Oh, so unappealing. I'm gay. I can't, I was not a dirty kid. I'm not, look, Mark, Mark, can I just call you Mark for a second? Not really your audience. You know what I mean? Others might be purely and wholly entertained by the sight of grubby idiots singing about how grubby they are and how idiotic they are. Me, personally, I just... I don't know. Tom Sawyer is such a minor character in this that it's almost like he's a <laughs> it's almost like Tom Sawyer has been paid an exorbitant amount of money to appear for a cameo in a <laughs> in a production that they know is not going to be nearly as recognized. Everyone knows Tom Sawyer, so he's like the celebrity in this shared universe, this Marvel cinematic universe of Mark Twain. And it's like we we're, we're dragging Tom Sawyer on stage like get out here. Everybody knows you. They don't necessarily know Huckleberry. Uh, your story doesn't have any real arc. That's why we're adapting Huckleberry's story. Two so- I should say two songs in a row now on the recording on the album. Uh, that are under three minutes. Two songs also in a row that hammer home their choruses to the point where I am utterly exhausted. Not a great double whammy, not a great one-two punch. The the killer with any musical is, is if you see people in the audience checking the playbill, I don't know if anyone listening has had that experience where they open up the playbill to sort of get a better understanding of where am I in this first act? How many more songs do we have to go before I can maybe take a break? Maybe leave forever. (laughs) Maybe I won't come back for the second act. This one-two punch of do you want to go to heaven and the boys? Not exactly... Not exactly. I can hear some itching in the audience. I can hear some some rustling in those creaky seats. I am waiting for the light to shine. I am waiting for the light to shine. I have lived in the darkness for so long. I'm waiting for the light to shine. Waiting for the Light to Shine is a song that works, okay? But, caveat, asterisk, it's a song that doesn't really work in a musical theater sense. It does work if you think of it as a Roger Miller single. In terms of a musical theater context, the track is 90 seconds long. We don't even get a second verse. We don't get a second chorus. It ends that quickly. Overall, the tracks are so short that I get the sense that Roger Miller really didn't understand how to write for theater, how to write for the stage. And I'm not sitting here, you know, with a calculator in my hand adding this up. I'm not some sort of uh, OCD, A-minded number cruncher here. You know what? Scratch the fact that I said OCD as as if I'm like, that's bullshit. I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to keep this in just so I can like really hammer that home for myself. And I want you to know that at home too. (laughs) That I really didn't like the fact that that came out of my mouth. So easy to just use that term. I'm OCD. Shut up. (laughs) Really, really getting off the beaten path here as I beat myself up. Uh, I'm just saying that we should be able to sit 
and rest within songs. When a song starts, the audience has this expectation that we're really going to be able to live within it, and we're really going to get a great sense of how this song grows, how it progresses to that chorus, and what it's trying to say. The songs have to communicate something very clearly, and it has to be something, hopefully, that's a little bit complicated, a little bit complex, something that has shading. And I just don't think that with the example of Waiting for the Light to Shine, 90 seconds is not enough time to really learn anything about a character. Now, some might argue otherwise. Some might be a huge fan of this score. I would love to hear from you. If you think that Waiting for the Light to Shine, as a random example, does the work of establishing Huck's perspective, I should say, uh, this is Huckleberry's first song. It's his first big solo. And he's sort of reflecting on his life and all of these different people in it. And he's wondering, you know, who am I? I've heard about who I should be, but what do I, what do I need to do? What do I actually need to prioritize? What do I care about? That, that's, that's a very good moment for a character in a musical uh, piece. He's the lead. We should know what he wants. And that's why so many composers write what are known as I want songs. So what does Huckleberry communicate in this 90 seconds? Well, he's waiting for the light to shine. He's putting out this metaphor. And I would argue on this side of the fence that it just doesn't doesn't really hook me in. I, I feel like there's arguably a better song later, deeper into the score, that's more a statement of character, that's more a, a, a stronger statement of purpose and perspective. And I think that song should actually come where we are right now in the production, earlier, much, much earlier in the act. We'll get to that in a second. Government is John Goodman's big track on the album. Of course, he is playing the role of Pat Finn. You got your damned hands in every pocket of my clothes. Well, you that go, that go, that go, government. Oh, don't you know, oh, don't you love them sometimes? John Goodman sells it like nobody else. I mean, because John Goodman is fantastic, of course. But it's not really a great showcase for who Pap is, to the point that later, when you discover, you know, deep into the second act, moments before the curtain ends, when you realize that Pap is dead and has been dead throughout this entire odyssey that Huck and Jim have been on, you kind of think to yourself, oh, Wait, who? That character that hasn't been on stage since he sang the song Government? What was that guy all about? Do you remember? Oh, right, that guy that was just, like, mad and sort of goofy? He, what was what was the deal with that song? It was sort of funny, but also sort of vicious and frothy and sweaty. Did you care when they revealed that? No, it doesn't, it doesn't land, is what I'm trying to impart. It, it just doesn't... It kind of makes you look at your watch. When you're listening to the song Government, you kind of look at your watch and think... When is intermission? <laughs> I, I, I can't be the person that keeps looking at that playbill, but I really want to. I want to pick up that playbill. Say a hog ain't nothing but a forky thing. Little forked feet with a nosy ring. Pickle them feet, folks, have it a hand for the hog. If you took an ocean, I bet. Could the hog and make a hell of a pet. You could teach him to ride and hunt. You can clean him up and let him sit up front. Hand for the hog is a really weird song that that is very much in keeping. I learned after dipping my toe into Roger Miller's back catalog, it's very much in keeping with his history of writing novelty songs. So when you think about it in the context of the show, it doesn't really work. Tom Sawyer appears in this very theatrical 
uh, ethereal moment. He appears before Huckleberry, as, moments after Huckleberry has killed a pig and spilled its blood to fake his own death. Tom appears in a fantasy sequence to sing Hand for the Hog. And this is not a show that has done this type of, it's not invoked this sort of fantasy convention before, and it doesn't after. Hand for the Hog is the only moment where we get weird and we get funky. And I think it would throw a lot of people off. I think people would be very confused as to why Tom has suddenly appeared, why he suddenly vanishes, and why he is singing a song about the benefits and the wonderful qualities and characteristics of the pig. So, all of that said, if you just think of it in the context of Roger Miller and his history with novelty songs, it actually does make sense. It seems like Roger Miller really wanted to just write a goofy, honky-tonk song in the style of, you know, his novelty tunes. I'm going to play an example here. Uh, One of his bigger novelty tunes was You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. Can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you've mine too. You can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. Can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. Can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. But you can be happy if you've mine too. All you gotta do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. Well, you can't go swimming in a baseball pool. So when you compare that to the clip of Hand for the Hog that you would have heard a few moments ago, you could sort of see where he's coming from. Roger Miller, this is his only theatrical score. He's been writing for himself for the Nashville music scene for so long. I'm not surprised that he didn't necessarily know how to meld these two genres together, the Nashville music sound and the sound of Broadway. I'm not surprised that the mashup didn't necessarily work, but it is disappointing. When I watched Big River in Only Maryland. I, I was that person in the audience who was very confused because <laughs> when Tom appeared, the lighting the lighting becomes blood red, and there there was a trio of dancers I remember, and they had big hand puppets. They it was it was very confusing, and the audience I should say throughout that entire evening in Only Maryland barely entertained. I, I'm sorry. I hate to. I'm not really putting it on the shoulders of the people on stage. I'm putting it on the shoulders of the of the all white writing team. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go into how much I, I can't really get over how the team is made up entirely of of white people. But uh, the audience was never stimulated. They were never pushed to a point of true entertainment. I think we were all sort of listless. We were all sort of taking it in as if we were watching some sort of mediocre television show, and that was a real bummer. Isn't that the worst? That's the worst kind of evening at the theater, I would say. I would say. <laughs> Hello, I'm Winthrop. I, Huckleberry May, somewhere sitting underneath some tree somewhere, maybe fishing, or maybe someplace sitting just wishing I was fishing. Oh, I, Huckleberry May, do hereby declare myself to be nothing ever other than exactly what I am. 
I Huckleberry Me is that song I was mentioning earlier. It, it's so much stronger in terms of this. This is the moment deep into the first act where Huckleberry can actually say, "I know who I'm going to be." At least for now, I am going to uh, encourage certain instincts, and I'm going to chase certain dreams, and everything else can go. Everyone else can go fuck themselves. Uh, I think that's where waiting for the light to shine. We can hold off on that. We can use that in some other sort of. We can recontextualize that. I should say, I Huckleberry Me needs to go earlier in the show, in my very fucking humble opinion. Uh, I should also say that Huckleberry is almost always played by uh, a 20-something, and that always creeps me out. I know Huckleberry is supposed to be sort of in this vague age range of, I don't know, 15 to 16, 13 to 16, but when you watch like a 22-year-old twink on stage play Huckleberry, it's really weird. I, I don't like the idea. I don't like it when adults play kids. In general, uh, you're a good man. Charlie Brown is one of the few examples where I can accept that as an audience member and go with that, suspend my disbelief. But in, in, in the context of Huckleberry Finn, it, it really doesn't work. Muddy Water is when Ron Richardson shows up as Jim. We, I should say he shows up musically for the first time, and he really injects the cast album with something that's needed, and that's vitality. He's a fucking powerhouse. Muddy Water is the first genuinely good, catchy, properly musical theater song. We really sit in it. It is just, it's such an earworm. I've been singing it ever since I sat down with the cast album earlier this week. It's propulsive. It has energy. And it's all because of Jim and his his official entrance into the narrative. Uh, Jim's story is 100 times uh, more interesting and compelling than Huck's. I, I honestly, who could give a shuck, uh, who could give a shuck about Huck? I'm really all over the map today. I apologize. I mean, just hold them up. Hold up these two stories. The story of a white boy learning that there's more to life than his passing fancies and pleasures versus the story of a man who is trying to escape servitude. It's insane to me that that Mark Twain and the production team behind this show expect me to care about them equally. I don't. Sorry, Huckleberry. Can you hear me, Huckleberry? It's me, Margaret. The Crossing is a song that I'm not going to talk about for too, too long. It comes at the moment where Jim and Huck encounter that ship I mentioned of black men and women being returned after having tried to escape from slavery. Uh, it is sung by the slaves as they are being returned. It's it's a little bland. Uh, there is a better example of the gospel slash revival uh, style of tune later on in the show. It is also two minutes long. <laughs> How are audiences not blinking and thinking, Wait, it's done? How is it done? (laughs) I'm here for a musical. Uh, When the sun goes down in the south, this is crazy. So this is, again, the structure of musical theater is not really being upheld because this is supposed to be the big closer for Act 1, and it is sung by the Duke and the King, the two con men who enlist Jim and Huck into their enterprises. It's a song for them. It's a song for the Duke and the King. It allows them to sort of steal the show for a few minutes, presumably. I I think in the mind of... Of Roger Miller, he is thinking to himself, this is going to be so 
funny. These goofy bad guys are going to appear on stage. They're going to be played by these excellent actors. We're going to get two really great guys, and the audience is they're going to they're not going to want them because they're rap scallions. They're they're scoundrels they be, but they're going to fall in love with them because this song, when the sun goes down in the south, it's going to tell us everything we need to know about them. And by the end. They're, they're just going to bring the house down. I, I really feel... I mean, everybody writes with the intention of really knocking everyone off their asses, ripping the socks off their feet. And man, it does not work. It does not work. Uh, it's not funny. I have a very hard time believing that any pair of actors could really make this song funny. I feel like I would watch it with glazed eyes from beginning to end. Uh, at Towards the end of the track, uh, Jim appears in the background, the far background. We can barely hear him with this mix that's available with this album. He's singing Muddy Water, a Muddy Water reprise. It's almost as if everybody involved realized, oh, that's right. It's the end of Act 1, and we need to really build to this swell. We need to experience this swell of musicality as the curtain comes crashing down and sending us energized into the intermission. But what we have is this rinky-dink character song sung by two buffoons, how do we make this work? How do we really give the audience a good send-off so that they can be ready to come back happy for Act 2? Well, Jim, Jim, he's he's the only character that we've written that has any sort of uh, vocal power, uh, so we'll throw him into the mix. He saved the last few songs. Uh, maybe he can save us here, right? With a very quick muddy water reprise. Done word. All right, so The Royal Nunsuch is the song sung by Huckleberry and the King and the Duke. They are introducing this sideshow act to a bunch of uh, barefoot buffoons, I'm just going to say it. And I cannot deal with how many times they say the word Nunsuch. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, you come this far. Well, come on in, see the Nunsuch. Nunsuch. I stay up late. I've seen it before, but I still can't wait to see the nun such. Nun such. Nun such. She's got one big breast in the middle of her chest and an eye in the middle of her nose. The score really relies on repetition. And I know that, again, Roger Miller is more than likely pulling from some sort of folk tradition this idea that the, the chorus maybe is more important than the verse and that works around the campfire. That works when you got a hot dog on a stick. But I am a sophisticated Broadway seat, and I need a little bit more than that. This song, The Royal Nunsuch, makes me want to listen to The Devil Went Down to Georgia. For some reason, it's evoking that in my brain. That's a good song. That's a real barnstormer. A real shit kicker, if you will. Uh, the Royal Nunsuch kind of feels like someone reminded the team that, you know, we have an ensemble. <laughs> 
from that ensemble from the beginning. You know, they can play other characters. This is a this is a fucking musical after all. Uh, they, we should probably give them something to do. Uh, trust me, you don't want to be in the ensemble of Big River. I'm not really sure who you want to play. Clearly, you want to play Jim. Uh, that's the best character in the entire show. Even though for the most part he gets sidelined so that Huck can take priority. Everyone else beyond Jim. Bad character. Don't want to play anyone else. I see the same stars through my window. You see through yours. But we're worlds apart. Worlds apart. I see the same skies through brown eyes. That you see through blue. But we're worlds apart. So now we get to, this is the song that really tries in its own way to deliver what Mark Twain said right right at the beginning. He said, we're not supposed to take any morals from this. We're not supposed to learn. We're not supposed to grow. I'm not trying to do anything here other than offer you a story where people talk and move from one location to the other. How dare you glean anything else from it? But Worlds Apart goes directly against that intention. It says to Mark Twain, sorry, we have to do something here. We have to give these characters an arc of some sort. And Worlds Apart is this very easily digestible message of uh, Jim saying to Huck, look, I know that we have been on this journey together for some time now, but I feel that you don't really get where I'm coming from. And I don't really think you understand the enormous gulf that exists between my race and your own. That gulf is incredibly wide. There are those in, you know, we have a friendship and that helps to bridge that divide to a certain extent. But when I look up at the stars, the same stars that you are looking at, you might think to yourself, oh, we're, we're, we're the same. But my experience is not your own. I, I have a much more harrowing narrative that you could never begin to relate to. You you thought it was hard because your father was a drunk and people were telling you to read and write and do your homework. Well, now it's the moment in the show where you need to start growing. And I, this black character that is written by a white person, my dialogue is written by a white person, I am going to teach you, white child, that racism is bad and that you need to start evolving as a human being. It's not enough to just sit in a cave barefoot with your fucking white buddies and eat bat skulls, chomping on them like Triscuits. You gotta do some work. Gotta, you gotta meet me in the middle. Gotta keep bridging this divide. Uh, it's, it's racism education for white people written by white people. 100%. The song is nice, I guess, but it's for children. This is not a song written for adults. I mean, if you're an adult who likes easily digestible messages like Worlds Apart, then, you know, all the more power to you. Um, and, and to its credit, Worlds Apart is nearly three minutes long, so it actually feels like we're truly sitting in a moment of musical expression rather than burning through it, so I do like that. Uh, there's a one-two punch in one track. It's, it's Arkansas, that's, that's the first half of this track, and then we also transition into another tune called How Blessed We Are. Arkansas should be offended by their place in musical theater history. If I was from Arkansas and I heard this... Arkansas, Arkansas, I just live old Arkansas. I would be quite disturbed and kerfuffled. <laughs> 
I don't like the fact that there's this fool, this like simpleton singing about Arkansas and oh, he just, he goes on for so long and I just, mm, I don't I don't like this fool, this, this odd character that appears out of nowhere. Again, not a character you want to play. Don't really want to be playing a, a cartoonish version of a simpleton in 2019. If you get laughs, are those really the best kind of laughs? Do you, do you want those laughs? I don't think so. I think that character, by the way, of the simpleton singing Arkansas, Arkansas, I just love old Arkansas. I think that is supposed to be annoying. I think that that is their clear intent. I resent it all the more for that. Stop trying to annoy me on purpose, Big River, I say to you. Um, so when you get to this track and you find yourself getting a little itchy, just jump to 220, two minutes and 20 seconds for the How Blessed We Are section. Uh, there is a solo as performed by Jennifer Lee Warren. Uh, it's really good, um, and it gets me away from the cartoon hick voices that have been bouncing around in my head this entire album. And I would argue that it's better than The Crossing in terms of evoking the revival gospel uh, style, that genre. How blessed we are as children of a, a God so good and true. And you, oh, 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 how blessed we are. You want to be here with me? You know that girl whose father died and Huckleberry, like, meets her and helps her out and is sort of a sympathetic shoulder on which she can cry on? She sings in this moment. Again, it's almost as if the writing team realized, oh, shit, women! Oh, right, women. Oh, fuck. Oh no, now we gotta write a song for the girl. Ah, for fuck's sake. I can't hum that song to save my life. Uh, I, I, you wanna be here with me? Maybe that's it. If you think there's heartaches where you are tonight, then you. Yes, I think that is how it goes. Because I remember thinking, this could work as a country single on its own. I'd like to hear Dolly Parton sing this. Um, again, in the context of the original show, not the card, well, you know, whatever. We do get a reprise of Waiting for the Light to Shine, where Huckleberry is very angry, and I get very scared because the scary Huck is scary. All right, I'll go to hell! I'll take up wickedness again, which is my line being brought up to it. And for a starter, I'll steal Jim out of slavery again. If I can think of something worse, I'll do that too. Because as long as I'm in and in for good, I might as well go whole haul. Isn't he scary? That sounded scary. Uh, it's weird that the slaves uh, join Huck on this reprise. Again, we're juxtaposing like this boy having a racial awakening. He's getting woke. <laughs> it's literally, the show should be called Huckleberry Gets Woke. And he really does in the reprise of Waiting for the Light to Shine. But the, sl- the, the characters who are slaves singing in the background, really, you're going to relegate their aspirations for freedom to the background while Huckleberry gets to talk about how fucking woke he is now. Oh, come on. Give me a break, guys. Free at last. Oh, no. Okay, so. Okay. Free at last. This is... Uh, it's white people crafting a narrative for black characters. Uh, I know I've said that before. I've repeated myself on more than a few points 
in this episode, and I apologize. When I when I get a little negative, when I don't err on the side of positivity, I tend to repeat myself. But I can't get over this song, Free at Last, where they have Jim quote Martin Luther King Jr. The only distinction they make is that Jim says, I'd be free at last, free at last. Great God Almighty, I'd be free at last. Whereas, of course, MLK said, Great God Almighty, we are free at last. So this fucking menagerie of whites, these, oh boy, these honky-tonk crackers sat down and decided that they were going to sample Martin Luther King and one of his most famous speeches for the sake of putting a song in Jim's mouth. They, they just, they, they're putting these words in Jim's mouth and I think it's just so simplistic. It's way, it's, it's somehow simultaneously way too simplistic and way too clever by half. They think they're being clever by making this distinction. Yes, yes, Jim, he lives in his time. And it's a, it's a harder time. It's a time when a, a man like him could only imagine being free. One day he thinks to himself, I will be free. But, ah, uh, little does he know that one day there will be a man named Martin Luther King Jr. who will say, who will say that we are free free at last. Huh? Please to be giving me the Tony Award for best musical, please. <laughs> I can't get over it. Stop patting yourselves on the back. You all white writing team. Stop piggybacking. <laughs> Stop piggybacking off the achievements of greater men than yourselves. Maybe I'm patting myself on the back for being too woke myself. <laughs> maybe my indignation, maybe I'm virtue signaling. I, I, I honestly don't know, but I think we can all agree that this is stupid. <laughs> This is fucking stupid. And the show ends with a reprise of Muddy Water. remember distinctly when I saw this in Only Maryland, this is the type of reprise where we have everyone on stage uh, has completed their bows. Every cast member has had their moment in the light. Uh, it's shining on them. They've been waiting for that light to shine on them and they've they've bowed and you think the show's over and you think to yourself, I can go home. I've been looking at the playbill all night and my friend had delivered his two lines 80 minutes ago and he hasn't said a thing since. I just, I'm ready to go. Oh, okay. And the, uh, the cast is singing a reprise of Muddy Water, but because I am a member of American theater going audience, I am, I'm standing. I've given the, I've given you a standing ovation because you just did the group bow. You finished the bows. Why are you still singing? Oh, do I sit down again? Do I, or do I keep clap? Oh, you're clapping in rhythm. Oh, and you're looking at me. You're making eye contact. Yada, waiting for the light to... Yes, okay, fine, I'm clapping along with you. Trust me, you don't have... Please stop making me have fun. Every day I go to work, every day I interact with people that I have to put a... I have to put a smile on my face for these people. 
I just wanted to go. I just wanted a good evening. Why are you forcing me to be jolly? <laughs> Why are you trying to make me err on the side of positivity? You know what? Fuck erring on the side of positivity. Big River, I'm going to deliver my final thoughts on you in just a fucking second. But first, let's get a quick word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Lawyer! That's what I would say to anyone who claims 5678 Coffee isn't the best coffee brand on the market. I would sink my puppy teeth into their throats and never let go. Ruff, ruff. Hello, my dears, my name's Gavroche from Les Miserables, and for too long the system and its machine have tricked the people into believing 5678 Coffee is inferior to other brands. Well, I say no more, me bruv. Take it from me, a small child who participated in an ill-advised student revolution, got shot in the stomach, and is now a ghost. Societal change only comes for those who remain alert and awake. If you are not willing to throw yourself into the gears of the machine, then you're a gear, a stupid, stinking gear, my dears. And I hate gears, I do, I do, I do. Not convinced by the testimony of a child, eh? Well, I don't... Oh, well, I should say, don't mistake my size for weakness, love. This bumblebee's got a right stingy dozzy does. Wipe the scales from your eyes today and pick up a bag of five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. Welcome back. Ah, so... The big question. Did Big River deserve to win the award for Best Musical in 1985? Look, despite my complaints, there are some earworms in this score. Throughout this whole week, I have often found myself singing Muddy Water and I Huckleberry Me, specifically. Uh, When I first sat down with the cast album, I had a fairly strong negative reaction. But... With a bit of time, I've softened. I don't know if you can tell from the tone of my voice throughout the last hour or so, but I, I have softened on Big River, if only a little tiny bit. I just don't know if Huckleberry Finn is suited for musical theater. I don't know if that story is meant to be told on stage. Listening to the album from beginning to end, I just imagined a touring production of four people putting up very basic flat sets. I imagined someone on a keyboard. I imagined... Elementary school students. Huckleberry, the thing you have to think about is it's a story that takes place chiefly outdoors. I mean, that was a huge part of Mark Twain's aesthetic. The idea that they were going down the Mississippi River and encountering all of these different people. And when you relegate an outdoor story to the stage, more often than not, it's going to come off as very static and very stilted. That Tony's clip uh, that I mentioned, which is available online, we'll make it available on Twitter as well, of course, Musical Man Pod on Twitter. I was sort of astonished by how boring it seemed on stage. Now, keep in mind, when casts appear on the Tony Awards to present a selection from their show, sometimes they can't recreate their original staging, because maybe they are limited by the venue where the Tonys are being presented. And so maybe that was the case. But when when Huckleberry and Jim hop on that raft and go down the Mississippi, the raft is basically like a Roomba. Uh, This Roomba raft moves maybe 16 inches downstage to the apron. And it is just that the set looks very muddy, and drab. I was very intrigued by a clip that I saw online, a promotional video for a production. Let me see, where is this here? I didn't write, oh, I didn't write down the name of the theater and I apologize, but I was really intrigued by this promotional video because it incorporated 
water elements very clearly on stage. I don't know if this was in a black box setting or if it was in the round with the audience completely surrounding the performance space, but there were docks up against real bodies of water, and I loved that. There was a there was a real raft on real water, and the characters have to balance themselves while performing. That's much more compelling. I sit up and I want to watch these two performers act within that specific set of circumstances. I really like that. Uh, When the raft is just on a flat stage against a fucking backdrop, that's fucking boring and I'm not here for it. Uh, Now, let's talk about the other nominees. Did any of them deserve to take the best musical award home in place of Big River? I don't know. I'm honestly not familiar with these shows. The shows that were nominated that year alongside Big River were Grind, Leader of the Pack, and quilters. Uh, Now, obviously, those are all going to receive their own episodes with time, but I did do a little bit of light research, and I'm thinking, I'm I'm not going to make a hard decision here, but Grind seems to, I think it might have deserved more credit than it initially received back in the mid-80s. Keep in mind, all of the other nominees were total failures at the box office. They all had incredibly short runs on Broadway. Grind ran for 71 performances, Leader of the Pack ran for 120, and Quilters ran for 24. That's terrible. Anything under 100 is generally considered to be a total failure of a run on Broadway. So again, I understand that, you know, Big River ultimately would clock just over a thousand performances, and audiences were turning out. They were turning out for it, so I guess the voters really just wanted to celebrate that fact. We've done so terribly. All of these other shows that we've nominated were such bombastic, loud, obvious failures. We we just got to rally around old Huckleberry Finn. We just give him a trophy. I uh, will now rank the show. Of course, we only have one other show to compare it to, that being Kiss Me Kate, and I'm going to put it squarely under. Kiss me, Kate. I know. Shocker, right? So our list, uh, the spreadsheet that is available on Twitter that uh, keeps track of our rankings of these Broadway shows, uh, the, the list will be updated accordingly. You can find a pinned tweet that links to that spreadsheet. Uh, you can keep track of how that list updates as we go even further. Oh, show-related ephemera. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, I'm always hoping to find a commercial that utilizes a song from the show that we're talking about. I couldn't find any examples of that, unfortunately. Uh, I couldn't find like a McDonald's commercial a commercial that incorporated Waiting for the Light to Shine. Uh, in, in lieu of that, we are going to hear from an actor playing a drunken Mark Twain, or maybe it's a drunken actor playing Mark Twain. Who could say? Where, where does the drunkenness begin and end? Uh, we're going to hear him talk about a riverboat in a very bad commercial. Patty, hit it, hit it. If there was one thing I, Mark Twain, loved, it was riverboats. Well, you don't see too many riverboats now like they used to have in the old days. No, sir. But there is one, though, not far from you. Camden Park has this stern wheeler called the Camden Queen, ready to take you on a 45-minute trip down the river for a ride on a real riverboat. Come to Camden Park. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Bongo Babies of 1932. Everyone ready? Then away we go! (laughs) 
Oh, oh, fantastic. Great. So we are going to be talking in our next episode about a uh, nominee uh, for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ultimately did not win. It was nominated in 2008, and that show is Passing Strange. Can't wait to talk about that. I'm really not familiar with it. Uh, I, I believe Spike Lee uh, directed a filming of the production, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to track that down, obviously. Very excited about that, and very excited, uh, once again, I feel like so positive, and it's because I'm thinking of you, the listener. Thank you so much for listening to this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. Uh, we are absolutely available in iTunes right now, and we have received a quite an amazing batch of iTunes reviews in the iTunes store. Thank you so much to every single person who wrote review. I hope, I hope this episode uh, holds up. I hope it is in keeping with the wonderful words of praise that you provided. Uh, if you're listening right now and have the time, please uh, find us in the iTunes store, give us a five-star review, and on top of that, write a review that will accompany that five-star rating. We are available via Podbean. Our Podbean address is musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We're available through Stitcher and on Spotify. Our Twitter profile handle, I mentioned it earlier, is musicalmanpod.com. Pod, of course. <laughs> it's Musical Man Pod across the board. Very easy to remember. Imagine a pod that I, the Musical Man, step into at night like a coffin on my Dracula. Please like and retweet uh, all of our posts on Twitter. Help spread the word. And if you'd like to email me, you can email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about your experiences with Big River. Have you ever been in a production of Big River? Uh, was it weird? Was there a weird person in the cast? There's always a weird person in the cast. You know that's true. I'm also going to take a moment to thank Alex Green for our art and Zach Little for our music. Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>